for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. The teaching text today comes from Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. He subdued nations under us, people under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth, sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations, God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham, for the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. This is the word of God for the people of God. Everybody said, thanks be to God. All right, you can be seated. You know, it's funny how uh, life works. <clears throat> Relationships that you had a million years ago sometimes come back. Uh, Will and Lindsay Renfro are seated right here. Will and I grew up as children together. Uh, his cousin, Mimo Morielli, is one of my best friends for all of my life, and uh, Mimo and I have been texting a lot lately, and I was remembering how much, as teenagers, Mimo and I loved the original Conan O'Brien late-night show, which it was just weird, because we were weird, and there's something about the oddity of that that felt really nice. They're like, I think early Conan O'Brien defined a generation of of comics and comedians. And Conan O'Brien used to have this bit. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I thought about showing it, but I thought I could probably use two or three minutes for more important things. But I'm going to tell you about it, okay? We'll do it shorter. It was this thing called Frankenstein Wastes a Minute of Your Time. Has anybody seen this? So the whole bit is somebody comes out dressed as Frankenstein, and Frankenstein is really excited to show Conan O'Brien something. So Frankenstein starts going all through the building, uh, 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 you, know, you know, beckoning the camera on, and Conan is narrating, okay, we're going backstage, we're going down the hallway, we're going down the stairs, and it takes a minute or two minutes, and all the while Frankenstein is, uh, 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 you know, this way. And then finally, at the end of it, there's the big reveal of the thing that, that Frankenstein wanted to show Conan, and it's like a light switch. And you're like, the bit lived up to its name. That was a terrible use of my time. Frankenstein wastes a minute of your time. And I thought that really perfectly prepared me for parenting. <laughs> of course, I don't mean that, but, uh, you know, my, my kids get so excited about stuff that makes no sense to me. It's like, dad, dad, come see this, come see this, come see this. And it's like, a stick. Or, I pooped. Or... <laughs> It's like, that is childhood, like, on brand. That is perfect. And I wish that I were more like my children. My children have these very, very real, organic experiences of their emotions. Uh, you know, they, and they let it flow freely. My children feel sad, and they cry. They feel angry, and they hit, you know. They feel disconnected, and we can sense it. They, they laugh. They're silly. They feel all of these organic emotions, which is so very different than adults, because what we do is repress, and I can repress like the best of them. And what we end up doing, repressing and repressing and repressing all of the things that we naturally feel and think about is that we end up having to go to people and pay them a lot of money to help us become like we were when we started. 
people who can naturally let those feelings out and then learn to be healthy in the process. What we're trying to do in the season of Lent, now we've been using the Psalms to kind of guide and narrate us through navigating those big feelings and those big emotions that we have in our life with God. And for many of us, our, our emotional life with God can be very abbreviated or truncated. Some of us don't know how to be honest, and so we began using the Psalms to guide us in being honest about the things that we think and feel with God. We talked about how the Psalms help to give voice to our sadness. Sometimes we feel really sad. We feel in despair. And the Psalms teach us how to name those things and be transparent and candid about those things with the Lord. Sometimes we feel deep anger and rage, and there are things about which we should be very, very angry, things that grieve the heart of God. And sometimes we have unrighteous anger too, and we have to deal with that in the same way. And also, there are times in our life, and maybe some of you are going through this right now, where you feel like God is distant, and God's not taking your calls. And even those feelings need to be processed in prayer. All of the the Psalms are teaching us how to deal with all of these things. Now, to learn to be attentive to our inner life, the stuff that's going on in our mind and hearts, is more art than science, which is why we need the poets to teach us how to do it how to be attentive. I I like this poem I came across by William Martin. It says, do not ask your children to strive for extraordinary lives. Such striving may seem admirable, but it is the way of foolishness. Help them instead to find the wonder and the marvel of an ordinary life. Show them the joy of tasting tomatoes, apples, and pears. Show them how to cry when pets and people die. Show them the infinite pleasure in the touch of a hand and make the ordinary come alive for them. The extraordinary will take care of itself. I found like a 10 stanza poem by Mary Oliver that I really wanted to read, but I don't have time for it. So instead, I found one of her very short, her shortest poems. Mary Oliver said, Instructions for living a life. Pay attention. Be astonished. And tell about it. And the reason the poets are so helpful is they often embody this posture of wonder and joy, like Frankenstein wasting a minute of your time, like our children who discovering the beauty of creation. Or did you know that pears, too, have that little star seed thing in them, just like apples do? Kids are amazed at this, and we need their help. We need the help of children and poets to recover our own sense of joy. We need help because sadness and anger and disappointment come all on their own, but joy has to be awoken and cultivated and bidden to come. Consider Psalm 47 that uh, Lucy just read for us. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. So it begins, clap your hands, shout to God with cries of joy, for the Lord Most High is King over all the earth. And these two verses fit a really typical structure of a psalm of praise or a psalm of joy that we get in the book of Psalms. Verse 1, as you may have seen, starts with this summons. Uh, It's a call to action. Clap your hands, shout out with cries of joy. Uh, Why? 
The second part of it gives you uh, the reason. This is the structure. You have a summons and then you have a reason. The explanation for this call to action is that the Lord Most High is awesome. He's the great king over all the earth. And that, that theme, that reason goes through the very end of the psalm. This call to action, uh, to physically respond with clapping and, and shouting, is a call to express joy in God. It's effectively a call to worship. Uh, N.T. Wright, in his uh, little book, For All God's Worth, said, the word worship literally means worthship. It's to accord worth, true value to something, to recognize and respect it for the true worth that it has. Now, there's another typical structure for uh, these psalms of praise or these psalms of joy. If you looked at Psalm 27, you'd see this in verses 5 and 6. It says, For in the day of trouble he'll keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At, at his sacred tent I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Now, this one's a little more difficult to nail down, but, but the structure is, is pretty simple. It, it, the structure is because, because something is true of God or what He has done in my life, therefore, because He is, it's kind of the first psalm in reverse, the first structure in reverse. Because God has done this, therefore, I will do this. Because in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe. Because I know He will hide me and set me high upon a rock, therefore, at His sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music. There's the summons, the call to action, and there's a reason for it. There's because, the reason for it. Uh, and then there's the therefore, I'm going to live in light of this. David Taylor, in his book on the Psalms called Open and Unafraid, said, all of the Psalms of praise describe in some fashion who God is. They're saying something about who God is, what God does, by telling the reader what He's done. And they invite the reader to bear witness to such a God and to yield oneself to the faithful God. So all of these psalms of praise are anchored in one story. The psalmist is telling us, this is what I've experienced God doing in my life. Therefore, I'm calling myself and other people to joyful response to action because of what God has done. Uh, many of you were at the Ash Wednesday service when my friend Emily Curzon was talking about sacred remembering. In those difficult seasons or in joyful seasons, we need to capture the art of remembering the things that God has done. We need to write it down. We need to say it. And in telling our story and remembering our story, it increases our faith and it deepens our hope. And in a similar way, the Psalms um, compel us to tell our own story. The Psalms model for us a proper responsiveness to the goodness of God that's experienced in innumerable ways in our lives. Sometimes it's a response to the beauty of creation. Sometimes, like Psalm 119, it's a response to the gift of Scripture. Sometimes it's a testimony of how God pulled me through a difficult season. Sometimes it's celebrating that God has forgiven me and my sins have been removed from me as far as the east is from the west. Sometimes there are even just Psalms celebrating like, oh, yay, I get to go to worship today. And the psalmist is just rejoicing about this. I, a number of you have written psalms of, of sadness, lament. Some of you have written some psalms of rage and shared those with me. I want to give an assignment to all of you today, which is, is to write a psalm of praise. 
to think back on your own story, your own life, look for the goodness of God in your story and write a psalm of praise. You can use the structure that I've provided if you want to. Now, I actually think for me, talking about joy and talking about praise is a more difficult topic than to talk about sadness and rage and the distance of God. Because of the cynicism and skepticism and whataboutism that pervades our dark culture these days, it takes courage and it even takes a renewed sense of innocence to express gratitude and joy and praise publicly. Because you, you say something like, well, what about da, 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 all the other bad things that are happening in the world? It, it takes some faith and some courage to be able to express praise. So many of us have heard someone use an expression like this in the last couple of years, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. We hear that a lot. And yes, there's a lot that should outrage God's people. There are many ways in which God's creation does not reflect God's intentions at the very beginning, and so we should be hacked off about it. There's much to lament, even in the church, or perhaps especially in the church. There's much that evokes rage. But have you ever had the privilege of looking into Gideon Odom's eyes, my four-year-old, and seeing like the mania <laughs> and the mischief and the love that's in those eyes? Have you ever gotten to eat ribs at Burnco? Too soon? <laughs> I don't know. Have you ever been close enough to a friend that said he loves you? Man, what a gift. Have you ever heard Chris Thiele play the mandolin? Or Yo-Yo Ma play the cello? Or have you ever seen the cinematic masterpiece that is 1989's UHF featuring Weird Al Yankovic? <laughs> have there ever been moments where you feel like you've experienced God's presence in, in, in all of the goodness of creation? Yeah, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention, sure, but if you're never compelled to joyful worship, you're not paying attention either. I love how Andrew Peterson, in his song, Don't You Want to Thank Someone, said, don't you ever wonder why, in spite of all that's wrong here, there's still so much that goes so right, and beauty abounds. Sometimes when you walk outside, the air is full of song here. The thunder rolls and the baby sighs and the rain comes down. And when you see the spring has come and it warms you like a mother's kiss, don't you want to thank someone? Don't you want to thank someone for this? David Taylor, again in his book, said, While sin may tempt us to live in an economy of scarcity, where any number of things are found to be wanting, a psalm of praise invites us to experience the joyful presence of God as a presence of abundance. In praising God with the words of the psalms, explains Thomas Merton, we can come to know Him better. And knowing Him better, we love Him better. And loving Him better, we find our happiness in Him. Taylor here picks up on something really important. And it's that worship shapes us. That engaging in these activities <clears throat> has a formational effect on our, on our whole person. Uh, the way that we worship shapes us. And this notion of, of the formational role of worship is picked up in a 5th century Latin phrase by some smart people 
this 5th century Christian writer who said, lex orandi, lex credendi, and then later others added lex vivendi. Means the law of worship is the law of belief, which is the law of living, meaning how and whether we worship shapes how we believe. And how we believe consequently shapes the way that we live. If you want to change your life, change what you believe. If you want to change your beliefs, change the way that you worship. Now, let me ask you this question. Humanity has been through a dark couple of years on any number of fronts. And so, I I ask this question with a posture of mercy, but I do want you to think critically for just a minute. Thinking about this principle, lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi, the way you worship shapes how you believe, shapes how you live. How many people do you know in the last two years who have stopped being part of a church? And how many of those people either stopped professing to believe in the way of Jesus or just seemed as a person to get noticeably darker? And how many of those people are now making choices that would be incompatible with who they were two years ago? The way that you worship or whether you worship shapes how you believe, and that shapes how you live. Okay, now take this story in good humor. It's not original to me, but there's a story about this evangelical leader who was working at a Christian college, and from time to time, young men would come into his office and express to him that they had lost their faith. And very paradoxically, this, this leader, regarded by many as a wise person, would slyly say to them, okay, so tell me when you started sleeping with your girlfriend. <laughs> When you stop living a life of worship, it can change your beliefs, and changing your beliefs, it can change the way that you live. How does, how does your worship shape you? It's now been a handful of years uh, since I've been in, you know, kind of the smoke and lights, fog, dark room kind of worship environments. Don't get me wrong, like I planned a lot of worship services in those kind of environments in the past, but in, in now thinking about it as kind of like a worship scientist, I, I look on environments like that where there's crazy lights and fog and the lights are off in the congregation, I think, in what way is that shaping the worshipers? Is an environment like that more likely to create fans or is it more likely to create followers of Jesus? And all of us, we could also be critical of our own engagement in worship, and this is one of the big questions that I want to ask you to consider today. How is the way you worship shaping you? Think about it. How is the way that you worship shaping you? If the way that we pray and whether we pray in worship shapes how we believe and that shapes the way that we live, if we look at our lives and we want to reverse engineer it back to getting a sense of why we do the things that we do, I wonder if we ask this, we discover how is the way that you're worshiping or praying shaping you. Uh, N.T. Wright, uh, one, one of my favorites, uh, adapted the words of 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, talking about the nature of worship within the church. He said, though we sing with the tongues of men and of angels, if we are not truly worshiping the living God, we are noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. Though we organize the liturgy most beautifully, if it does not enable us to worship the living God, we are mere ballet dancers. 
Though we repave the floor and resurface the stonework, though we balance our budget and attract all the newcomers, if we are not worshiping God, we are nothing. Worship is humble and glad. Worship forgets itself in remembering God. Worship celebrates the truth as God's truth, not its own. True worship doesn't put on a show or make a fuss. True worship isn't forced. It isn't half-hearted. It doesn't keep looking at its watch. It doesn't worry about the person, what the person in the next pew may be doing. True worship is open to God, adoring God, waiting for God, trusting God even in the dark. And true worship will never end. I've shortened the quote at the end. He goes to say, and now these three remain, worship, management, and mission, but the greatest of these is worship. How is the way that you're worshiping shaping you? I want to give uh, three comments on worship, and then we're going to come uh, to the table to receive communion. The first thing I want to encourage us with, uh, encourage us with is that worship is a whole person activity. Or it might be more accurate to say worship ought to be a whole person activity. Now, you saw this in Psalm 47. You'll see this in many of the Psalms of praise uh, in, in the book of Psalms, is that there's almost always a call to action, some kind of physical action, embodied action. So, uh, the, the Psalms tell you to clap or to shout or to kneel or to lift your hands. And this tells us that from a biblical perspective, when one is worshiping, it can be seen. It can be observed. It's a, the whole person is engaged. Biblical worship is for whole persons. The mind is engaged, and the heart is engaged, and the whole body is engaged. Now, some of you may say, John, you're going to be legalistic about how we need to do things with our body, but I'm actually worshiping in my heart. You just can't see it. And I know you people. Uh, you guys love God. And, I, and I'm going to give you the benefit of that and say that that's probably true. But I would also say, um, you know, if I love my friends in my heart alone, and I never touch them, and I never talk to them, and I give them no body language, if there's no communication, if I, if I never, like, truly engage with those people, never looking them in the eye, it may well be true that I love them, but they will probably never know it. If, if Emily, if I told Emily, Emily policy shift for me. From now on, I'm only going to love you in my heart. I don't think that would work out very well for my marriage. Now, hear me as someone who truly uh, loves you people. I'm so grateful to get to be part of church community together. I love and appreciate so many things about our church community, and I could talk about that for a really long time. But if I were to stand up here and take a picture of all of us during music, it would look like 60 or 70% of us are standing and watching a person read the phone book. <laughs> not singing, not smiling, totally stationary, bored out of your skulls like you're waiting to get a root canal and dreading it. <laughs> like, oh, oof, that's, that's rough. Now, you may be worshiping in your heart, but if that's the case, many of us have a really convincing poker face, and no one will ever know that we're actually worshiping. I just want to give you permission to lighten up a little bit. Like, like, okay, like just lighten up. Sing. Engage your body. Sing. Maybe you don't know the words. You get a pass. Learn it this week. But sing. Uh, never lifted a hand. Give it a go. 
You know, sometimes you feel compelled to kneel. Um, you know, I was raised in a Pentecostal church. Some people would say you could take uh, the, the boy out of Pentecost, but not the Pentecost out of the boy. Sometimes, and there's certain songs that just get me right, I want to go, woo! And I can't. I chicken out. I don't want to. Uh, my friend John did it at the 11 o'clock service a couple of weeks ago, and it was amazing how it changed the, the environment, the worshiping environment. And so just lighten up, just engage, sing, uh, lift your hands. If you want to shout something, do, don't be weird, just, you know. <laughs> Kneel, lift your hands, smile. I mean, it's okay, even just get a little sway going. You're going to do it at a concert. I mean, just do it here, clap your hands. Now, we never do these things to be noticed by others. If you're weirded out about it, just do what I do and go hang out at the margins. <laughs> We're going to have the side sections overflowing and no one will be here. <laughs> Let's just give each other permission to, to not overly notice or not give too much attention to it. But I engage you to engage your body in worship. Worship is meant to be a whole person activity. Second thing that we see is that worship is something that must be practiced. It's something that we learn to do. Now, I want you to notice that in, in all of those psalms of praise, there's that summons, that call to action that's actually given as a command. It's telling you, this is something that you need to do. And some of you, you need, you need to lift your hands in worship. You need to sing, and it's going to change the way that it shapes you. Now, take out, let's just be, let's be real, take out the conversation about it being inauthentic. Of, of course, you need to mean it, but, but meaning it is a more complex topic than it first seems. David Taylor, again, said, listen, at times, our bodies may need to lead the heart and mind in acts of joyful praise. So you're coming in and you're hacked off at your kids, you're like wanting to transition. Sometimes engaging your body physically can train your heart, retrain and redirect your heart and mind to think about the things of God. Sometimes it goes the other way around, he said. At other times, our bodies may need to lead the heart, may need the heart and mind to lead it in acts of joyful praise. I don't really want to, but I also know that that is true, that thing that we're singing, and I need my body to participate in that truth. For the psalmist, it is the heart and the mind and the body and the soul and the spirit at all times. It is the whole self that is offered up to God. Now, it may be uncomfortable to, uh, to try this at first, but I want to encourage you to practice your worship, to let our gatherings together be a worship workshop for you. And so if you're one of those people who just never sings or you've got the ugliest voice, I don't sing that great. You heard me earlier. Just lend your voice to the choir, okay? Sing. Now, some of you have, may never have kneeled, and you need to. Some of you may have never lifted a hand, and you should give it a go. Some of you really want to shout for joy, but you're wondering, do Anglicans allow that? <laughs> well, we allow it. We're all learning how to do this together. I double-dog dare you to do it, actually. And as you take next steps, I just encourage you to encode in, into those steps the meaning of worship. I'm doing this because I recognize that God is worth these things, that the goodness of the gospel does evoke and should evoke a physical response that, that God could look at me or others could look at me and see like, yes, He is worthy of it. So encode into what you do the meaning of the worship of God. I'm doing this because God is worth it. And watch how the environment changes practice. 
And then the final thing I would say is that worship is a kind of joyful defiance. And it's a kind of defiance that we all need to practice. Life can be so difficult. Some of the disappointments that you have faced are just crushing beyond measure. Uh, some, of, some of us are just dealing with uh, enough everyday stressors that we like it's remarkable that any of us get out of bed. I have empathy. Like, I feel those stressors too. And, and this is why we have to fight not to lose our joy. One last time, David Taylor said, well, I wonder where that is. He said, because of the sorrow that dots our lives, joy is often a choice. While a song of praise may erupt from a spontaneous outburst of affection for God, it may also require a decision. When we choose to worship, when we choose to cultivate and awaken joy, we're standing up against the big lie of despair. And we're standing up for the hope of resurrection that all will be made well. That when Christ our King returns, wrongs will ultimately be righted, justice will be served, peace will be established, and death itself will work in reverse. And worship is the art of joyful defiance. It's the work of joyful defiance. And I hope that as we grow up together as a church, we're, we're, we're children together as a church. We're four years old. We're potty trained. Thank God. But as we grow up together as a church, I hope that we grow into being a community of joyful defiance, a community that finds our life together sustained by, by the teaching of Scripture, yes, by the Lord's table, yes, but also sustained by the worship of the church. That when our faith ebbs and flows, we hear in the strength of our brothers' and sisters' songs as something that, that compels us to continue to hope. And so I want to commend to you the cultivation of joy through worship, to engage your body, to, to practice doing it as, as an act of willful defiance against the tyranny of despair and the kingdom of darkness that feels so, so, so oppressive at times. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we come to the table, I remember the words of, of Hebrews said, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And it was for the joy on the other side of suffering, Lord Jesus, that you endure difficulty. And I pray that in the middle of the difficulties of just being a person, you would give us the grace to fix our eyes on joy. To remember that while many things are not yet as they will be, you still reign at your Father's right hand and you pray for us and you pull us and you hold us in the strength of your prayers. Lord Jesus, I pray for all of us that, you know, for the apathetic, I pray that you would stir up affection in their hearts and in my heart for you, Lord. For those of us who are just so burdened by the difficulties of life, financial difficulties, worries about our children, worries about our parents, worries about our vocation, this, this sense of despair because we don't hear your voice, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would so move and work in our lives that we learn to fall in love with you again. And as we come and receive Holy Communion today, I pray that it would be a means by which through the Holy Spirit we experience your presence and your power. May it stir up fresh joy in our hearts, fresh love in our hearts for you, Lord Jesus. 
as you sit and as you pray, I want you to consider in what way your worship is shaping you and how you feel the Lord Jesus inviting you into to greater reciprocity in your life with Him, greater expressiveness, greater intimacy in your life with Him. And maybe you would just ask Him uh, to, to stir that up. Maybe your prayer this morning would be, Lord, I want to want to engage with you in that kind of way. It's a fine place to start. Lord Jesus, as we, as we have this time together, do the stuff that we can't do. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.